Hi, this is Sarah. If you like this episode of Let's Talk About Sects, you can listen to my audiobook, Do As I Say, How Cults Control, Why We Join Them, and What They Teach Us About Bullying, Abuse, and Coercion. The audiobook will be available on Audible, Apple Books, Google, and Kobo from the 28th of June. A link is in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Before we get started, I want to welcome Audio Technica as presenting partner for this season of Let's Talk About Sects. I've been working with their equipment from the very beginning of the show, and like many podcasters, started with an AT2020 USB mic, which has served me very well. The kind folks at Audio-Technica upgraded me to a BP-40, which they tell me is also perfect for screaming into if you're in a heavy metal band. If you're not a podcaster, they have some great options like noise-cancelling headphones for travel, some really cool wireless headphones, or if you love to listen to vinyl like I do, they've got very nice turntables as well. Find out more at audio-technica.com.au. John Robert Stevens wrote when he was just 14 years old, My joy must be in doing his will, in being his slave, in the confidence that whatever comes to me when following him is his doing. In a real sense, I make him responsible for my life. He was writing about Jesus Christ, but as it would turn out in the decades following, he could well have been writing to his future devotees as to how they should feel about himself. Welcome to Let's Talk About Sects, a podcast about cults around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Steele. Before we continue, a content warning. This podcast deals with issues that some people may find disturbing, related to emotional abuse and controlling behaviours. This episode also deals with sexual abuse, including of minors. Please use your discretion as to whether this will be suitable for you and those around you who may be listening to. For this episode, I spoke with former member Caleb LaPlante, whose accounts I found to be candid and believable. His views are, however, his own and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the makers of this podcast. John Robert Bobby Stevens was born on the 7th of August, 1919, 
to Eva Catherine and William J. Stevens in Story County, Iowa. He was the only boy of four children, and in 1929, the family moved to Los Angeles during the Great Depression. There, William studied at the Life Bible College, headed up by radio evangelist Amy Semple McPherson. Then once William had graduated, the Stevenses returned to Iowa in 1933. Upon their return, William founded the Christian Tabernacle Church, where John helped his father out and taught children's Bible study classes. It was initially formed under the Foursquare denomination, which was the one founded by Amy Semple McPherson, but eventually became non-denominational. The same year, at the age of 13, John said that he received the Holy Spirit and saw a vision of himself speaking to many people in many languages and in many nations. At the age of 14, John composed four paragraphs that he entitled, To Be a Christian. Andrew Marzoni wrote for the Baffler Journal, quote, All cults have a foundational text, whether a how-to manual, Dianetics, a memoir, Mein Kampf, or a hybrid between the two, The Art of the Deal. The Living Word Fellowship has to be a Christian. Here's John Robert Stevens himself reciting the beginning of the text. To be a Christian, as I understand Christ, means the acceptance of the absolute authority of Jesus in all my life. It means that in everything I am and do, when I eat and drink, when I buy and sell, when I work and play, when I read and think, that I look to Jesus as my master. It means that I enthrone him as king in my affections, that I subject my friendships to his dominion, that I conduct my business and my intellectual and social life under his inspection and direction. Although only four paragraphs, it's quite a long four paragraphs, so I'll just pull out a couple of other key quotes. To be a Christian means that I am no more my own man, but Christ's man. It means the giving of myself away to him, so that I have no more right or title to myself, so that I have no more claim upon myself, and am no more at my own disposal. I am responsible for following, he is responsible for leading and keeping. It can be none of my business what happens to me, what I gain or lose when I follow him. I am also sure it will be mainly waste, friction, vain striving and misdirected effort, sickening failure and defeated ambition if I try to direct my own life. This gives you a bit of a sense of the emphasis on following and submission, and on giving up one's own sense of self. Quite impressive for a 14-year-old, but there's an interesting comparison of John's text and the words of George Heron from his 1892 text, Call of the Cross, that's worth a look. I've linked it in the show notes. John was already preaching himself by the age of 16, and after graduating Washington High School in 1937, he was ordained as a minister in the Pentecostal Full Gospel Temple, part of the Assemblies of God, according to biographical details from Living Word sources. However, Diane Langton for the Gazette wrote that John Robert was ordained at a four-square gospel church in Oklahoma in 1947 but he moved to the Assemblies of God Church in 1949 after a dispute. I came across a few differing accounts like these, and as with many charismatic leaders, there's the potential that some stories are embellished and some timelines condensed in the retelling. By the age of 20, John had married Martha Mickelson, and the couple had two daughters in the years following. 
According to an archive of the Living Word Fellowship website, which is no longer online, in 1949, John began preaching about a return to the pattern of church government outlined in the New Testament, restoring the purity and power of the first-century apostolic church described in the Book of Acts. The Assemblies of God, which is the Pentecostal denomination to which Australia's current Prime Minister Scott Morrison subscribes, removed John from his pastorship as a result of these unorthodox teachings. So in June of 1951, John formed his own church in Southgate, California, which he called Grace Chapel. Two years later, he started the Second Grace Church in Honolulu, Hawaii. Over the following two decades, John started a ministry school and a publishing house, and further churches became a part of his fellowship. According to the website Archive Again, even though Stevens initially resisted naming the growing fellowship of churches, it became commonly known as the Walk or This Walk, due to his emphasis that each Christian should have a personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. However, it was his biblically foundational messages which were so alive that gave rise to the name the Living Word Fellowship. John Robert Stevens's Living Word Fellowship is not to be confused with the Living Word Fellowship Christian group started in San Francisco in 1970 by Bobby Morris that told its post-1960s counterculture members to replace their drug use with getting high on Jesus. Some of John Robert Stevens's teachings overlapped with those of Sam Fife, whose name you'll remember from this season's episode about The Move. These included the fivefold ministry, emphasising the roles of prophet and apostle under the manifest sons of God doctrine. These concepts were born of the latter reign movement, and included a belief that the impending end times would bring about the leadership of the spiritual elite, that is, followers of the walk, who would establish the kingdom of God on earth prior to the return of Christ. Revelations and prophecy were big in the movement, with John receiving and sharing many. Conveniently, he suggested that followers would be better placed to receive revelations if they stopped thinking too hard. As an ex-member wrote in 2002, Stevens had a favourite saying, people would be better off if they would stand on their heads. By this he meant put down your intellect and stop thinking so much. Thinking too much blocked your ability to receive divine revelation. They also wrote, We were expected to accept what Stephen said as direct from God, without criticism. Our own spiritual capacity to receive the truth would confirm it. No need to carefully check the Bible. This will sound familiar to those who've listened to last season's two-part episode about Outreach International. As the anonymous former member continues, The spoken word was, in practice if not in doctrine, placed on a par with Scripture. In fact, most of us in the walk ignored our Bibles. I seldom ever opened its pages. Why would I? We were getting God's latest, hottest word straight off the press. From early on, John understood the power of his voice, and having travelled extensively to evangelise, he began transmitting his teachings over the radio and recording them on cassette tapes. John's tape recordings were labelled prior to distribution with a star that indicated the sermon's category. He had written a guide in 1958 entitled The First Principles, and it listed spiritual levels and stages of development under the categories milk for the babes, bread for the little children, and meat for the young men. The lessons were to lead followers from the first simple steps of faith into a mature relationship with God, 
and the cassette tapes were categorised accordingly. Sometime in the late 1960s, one of the affiliated churches left the following over concerns about occult teachings. Former follower Malika Bourne wrote on her blog, Had our Iowa parents been told the truth, they never would have sent teenagers to learn not-so-spiritual principles with the youth groups in California. We youth were sent home having been taught occult practices to exercise in the blessings. A handy glossary compiled in an online forum defines a blessing as a gathering generally in a circle, left hand over, right hand under, increasing individual blessing by virtue of the collective. And the list includes terms such as binding for restraining, confining, capturing whatever is perceived as satanic, body as meaning the body of Christ, used almost exclusively referring to TLWF members, which will also sound familiar to those who listened to the previous Let's Talk About Sects episode about Outreach International. Cross-dodger for a rebellious, unsubmissive spirit. Probe as an invasive interrogation. Position thinking as falsely imagining you matter as much to God as your leader does. Rebellious spirit used to describe the spirit of a congregant not submissive to the authorities closely linked to witchcraft and Satan. Sent to your room as put on restriction for being rebellious. Submission being a doctrine whereby members of the church must ask permission in minute detail for anything they wish to do, including but not limited to dating, marriage, employment, residence, schooling, areas of interest, etc. And upward flow, meaning the act of directing focus of activities towards apostolic level, preparing meals, cleaning house and mowing the grass of your leader's home, while pretending they are God. Malika Bourne now suspects that the regular claims of demonic assault or witchcraft attack were distractions created so that John could avoid taking responsibility for his own actions, which appeared to include adultery. In 1970, presumably as a vote of confidence in his son, John's father William incorporated and renamed his Christian Tabernacle Church as the Church of the Living Word. Then, during one day in December 1972, John claimed to have travelled seven years into the future, where he had seen the Kingdom of God. This revelation resulted in many followers planning their lives around the coming seven-year period, which would supposedly end in their joining the Kingdom. Around this time, John decided that he wanted to create a retreat, and by 1974, Shiloh had been constructed, a property with an estimated worth at the time of $5.5 million, and built largely with the unpaid labour of the Living Word followers. Anne Gravogel wrote about it for the Quad City Times in February 1979. Shiloh, a nearly self-sufficient complex one and a half miles south of Kelowna, and about 60 miles west of the Quad Cities, was established to train 1,000 prophets of God. Although there are 190 residents there now, occupancy ranges to 1,000, church officials said. In her article, Anne Gravogel described John Robert Stevens as follows. The short, stocky man, wearing a sky-blue leisure suit and open white shirt with curly grey hair peeking through at the chest, looks more like a country western singer than a preacher. 
He had opened up Shiloh to reporters in 1979 for the first time due to some bad press. As Anne Gravogel wrote, Kelowna residents have begun wondering whether rumours of illicit sex, coercion, mind control, gun storage and prison-like security at Shiloh are true. But some say the widespread fear of Shiloh is just a fear of the unknown. Caleb LaPlante was born into the Living Word Fellowship in 1980 in Anaheim, California. He spoke to me from Oregon, where he now lives, about his experiences and those of others he knows from his time in the group, and from more recent sharing of stories with numerous ex-members. There were members of my parents' age group who, in the 70s, would work at this facility, this property, large, expansive property known as Shiloh in the heartland of Iowa. They were almost more like working stints for longer or shorter periods of time. A lot of people would relocate out there for years. And the work was cleaning up the property, building structures and dormitories and sanctuaries, all free labor, which is another incredibly important thing to highlight here, how much people gave of themselves physically, of their time and of their physical exertion for no compensation because they believed it's what was required of them and that it was spiritual and faithful beyond leading a Bible study or the usual things that you would expect. This is just multiple degrees, 10 times degrees of investment of yourself. And that was happening in the 70s and 80s. There are many later accounts on forums by ex-members of time spent at Shiloh under a form of virtual house arrest, being watched over by kind women to assist in their recovery from some kind of perceived craziness. These accounts seem to be mostly by women whose husbands or parents had sent them there. As the fellowship grew, it also came to encompass various business endeavours, including a sawmill where stories of lost fingers were not in any way unusual. Many young people, feeling that the end times were near, followed the advice of their elders to forego their education and dedicate themselves to so-called kingdom businesses, at which they earned a nominal sum often far below minimum wage or sometimes nothing at all aside from room and board. What little they did receive would often go towards their end-time preparations, at this time still thought to be coming in 1979 as per John's time travel visions from 1972. Those who had regular jobs would tithe money and would also be pressured to donate to various church projects, including Shiloh, a camp in Brazil, a school, and even a silver mine in Nevada. At its peak, around 100 churches across four continents were said to belong to the Living Word Fellowship. Unusually in the realm of religion-based cults, there wasn't a great deal of judgment over lifestyle in terms of smoking, frequenting bars, or even going to strip clubs, though homosexuality was not allowed. Alcohol-fueled parties were common. Caleb told me a little more about this. So John set the tone for that, and it's widely known how loose he was. And there was even whole homes of women in San Diego and L.A. that would be single women who would be asked to come and move into that home. And it's just known that part of the reason for that was that he had close access to them and there was a lot of grooming going on. And so that set that certainly set the tone. And I've also heard stories that as that progressed more and his autonomy from the I mean, he had just risen so much in his in his mythic status that he 
at some point sought to make a clean break from more or less what you would call elders, people who helped him achieve that status because of the traditionalist or fundamental roots. And the stories are that there were very open public services where there were conflicts. People would call John to to attention over that infidelity and older leaders would ask for accountability and he would just say, who's with me? And most of the congregation would, in allegiance, turn away from those olders and say, I'm with you, John, you know, till the end, more or less. And so back to the parting and the drinking, this is going to be so hard for some people who just love him so dearly. They really loved him. But he was like a Santa Claus who, when he wasn't preaching, was just drunk. I mean, you love the guy, but he was always drinking and partying. And the people my age, and even one generation above who have stories of abuse, it almost all came out of that. There's two dynamics. I have absolute allegiance to those who are in leadership, which there's a whole hierarchical structure of leadership. So there's so much vulnerability there based on anyone in that chain can do the abusing. And then it's the looseness and it's the, but even that was tied to spiritual freedom. It was like all of this physical looseness and freedom and which resulted in sexual abuse and infidelity was rooted in the, well, we're not bound by physical world. We're made of something so much more. We're part of a system that's so much more and that allowed it. And so you have the control and the abuse channel. And then you have this programming that is based in being bigger or beyond normal constraints of society and civilization. Passivity was hugely frowned upon and the intensity with which members were expected to experience their faith was referred to as spiritual violence. Anthony Tony Cox is a film producer, artist and art promoter who was married to Yoko Ono in the early 1960s. A daughter, Kyoko Chan Cox, was born to the couple on the 8th of August 1963. Tony did a lot of the parenting in Kyoko's early years, which Yoko would come to feel guilty about, according to Tony's later documentary, Vain Glory. In 1966, Yoko left Tony for John Lennon, and following their subsequent divorce, Tony and his new partner Melinda embraced religion. Yoko and Tony ended up in a court battle over the custody of Kyoko, who was now eight years old, and Tony ended up in jail over Christmas of 1971 for withholding Kyoko from Yoko, with threats of further jail time if he didn't allow access. When Yoko and John won custody through the courts, Tony abducted Kyoko and went underground with his daughter and Melinda. This is when he says his family was embraced by members of the walk. John Robert Stevens personally delivered them a prophecy that put them in charge of overseeing church farms in Iowa. Private investigators hired by Yoko Ono and John Lennon weren't able to locate them, and Tony felt like all of his family's problems were solved, but he'd only managed to land them with new problems. Tony recounted in his documentary, quote, From the second you got up in the morning till you fell on your pillow at night, and even then I spent a lot of time listening to tapes in my sleep, you were listening to tapes of John Robert Stevens preaching and speaking. Some people didn't want to talk about anything unless it was about John Robert Stevens and what the new word of God from the Apostle was. So we wouldn't listen to the radio, we wouldn't read newspapers, we wouldn't go to the movies, we wouldn't watch television. We'd just talk about John Robert Stevens and his new words of revelation about what's going to happen on earth when God comes. Tony went on to work in the sawmill, which he described as slave labour. 
he says he later found out that, quote, under Stevens's direction, various apostolic leaders in the walk were receiving orders from Stevens directly to have sexual intercourse with various women in their congregation. During this period, if orders came from above, members might have little say over who they married or indeed divorced. One member wrote in an email in response to some of my questions that she was told who to marry in 1971 at the age of 19, and then seven years later was told to divorce her husband as he was withdrawing from the church. She followed the directions and was devastated to have to begin a new life all alone again after her marriage. Caleb LaPlante had some direct experience of this as well. When you're out, there's a code, whether it's written or rather understood, but you completely shut out those people and there's no access. And a lot of that took place with families. So you had people that were related by blood who were completely ostracized from one another. And it wasn't that somebody said, oh, you're not in contact with them. And it was this grueling process for the person who was still inside. It almost was like a badge of honor that I get to ostracize my loved ones because I'm still in. And to be even more specific, that took place with spouses, particularly when, when a marriage relationship was threatening in any way to the power structure. This actually happened in my own family. So I'm speaking first person where, where the leadership would aggressively, forcefully, rapidly try to separate the marriage and get one person out of the cult. And oftentimes these were the very same people who they put together and matched a marriage because that was so common is whether you like each other or not, there was an intentional matchmaking that happened and then a divorcing and a separating and matchmaking. And it was about control. Eventually, Tony Cox and Melinda's marriage was broken up by John Robert Stevens and Tony managed to exit the walk with Kyoko after this. He made his documentary expose about the Living Word Fellowship in 1986. Kyoko was 22 at the time, but she didn't get in touch with her mother Yoko again until she was 37 years old and had a daughter of her own. Caleb's parents became involved with the Living Word Fellowship around the same time as Tony Cox in the early 70s, so Caleb was born into the sect in 1980. Caleb gave me his impressions of what had appealed to his parents and others about John Robert Stevens's approach. It was communicated through all of his messaging and his systems of setting up the faith that it was beyond and that there were limitations in traditional Christian faith, and that there was a chosenness, which I know is a theme in cults, that this isn't available somewhere else, and it isn't just exclusive. It's really better in that we have something others don't. We've hit a thread. We've gone beyond traditional Christianity, and you want to be here because while we're rooted in it, and you value that, and that's a good thing, you also value pushing boundaries and moving into something that is beyond the establishment. And that was John Robert Stevens' forte. It was what really crystallized this movement. It was, there was gravity there. There was purpose. And it wasn't just about, a lot of people come to Christian faith out of dire circumstances, some of them in situations of hope and possibility, but a lot of them grasping with their humanity and finding answers in a Christian faith and not to diminish those, but those experiences. But this went beyond 
I'm really struggling in life and I need answers. It went to a promise and really painting this rosy picture of this potential for all kinds of really incredible, if not fantastical, if not ridiculous things. And I'm sorry, that'll be offensive to people who are still steeped in this cult, but things like living forever, everlasting life. These are now no longer just, I'm trying to live through my everyday. How do I get through that? It's, you know, I'm living for something big and something that's going to be, I want to be part of that small group that achieves something others aren't. Former Living Word Fellowship member Kelly Daniels wrote in a personal essay for The Sun magazine. Moses had lived hundreds of years and the world had been in decline ever since. To reverse this trend and live forever, as was our natural state. Stevens and his followers were creating the kingdom of heaven right here on earth. Against them stood the Nephilim, a race of demons who'd survived God's purifying flood and who now moved among us, agents of Satan disguised as regular people and bent on thwarting the will of the Almighty. The most powerful weapon against these demons was total, unquestioning submission, the surrender of the self. One former member emailed through a recollection of a hairstylist who counted a number of congregants as clients being announced by John Robert Stevens as a Nephilim, who was transmitting witchcraft to the leaders and members of the church. She recalled some 200-odd congregants having to approach the platform for John to lay hands on them and receive deliverances. John and Martha Stevens were divorced in 1978 after she discovered that members were being told that she was a Nephilim and that they were being directed to pray for her death. Some have also suggested that alcoholism on the part of John may have played a role. Diane Langton wrote for the Gazette that in Martha's petition for divorce, she stated that John Robert operated a $40 million religious empire, that his net worth was between $1 million and $2 million, and that church funds provided her with trips to Monte Carlo, Europe, and the Bahamas. Also revealed by the divorce proceedings was that John had only ever received a mail-order degree from the Chicago Bible School, and that he owned five houses in California one in Hawaii, and a 20-acre farm in Iowa, with all his expenses paid by the church. 1979 came and went with no return of the kingdom of God on earth, in spite of John's predictions. Following the breakdown of his first marriage, John soon married his former mistress, Marilyn Holbrook, in 1980. Marilyn had a son from her prior marriage, Rick Holbrook, whose name would become one of the most infamous amongst those with experience of the Living Word Fellowship. Submission up the line of the church hierarchy had become strongly emphasised for followers of the walk. And Woodrow Nichols wrote at the time that, While the scriptures, of course, call for a type of obedience to those over you in the Lord, it is certainly no manifesto for absolute obedience, the kind that Stevens is calling for. After all, every believer is ultimately responsible to God alone. A system of total obedience to those over you completely undermines this biblical principle leading ultimately to the Nazi ethic of innocence in the light of obeying orders. The Nazi ethic and the type of totalitarian obedience Stevens has in mind is an analogy that should not be lightly dismissed. Over the next few years, there were a number of lawsuits over control of the Living Word Church, owned by John's father William, William's son-in-law Fred Bickart, and John. It became clear that John's father and Fred Bickart had grown to be concerned over John's leadership style. Diane Langton wrote in the Gazette that Fred, 
claimed the sect's followers prayed for the deaths of people they thought were witches and kept files on members as a way to control them, but that William believed his son was influenced by his followers' adulation. By this time they were calling him the prophet and the door-opener apostle, amongst other things. But by 1983, John had dropped the court case, saying he wouldn't pursue control of his father's church any further, as he had been diagnosed with cancer and his health was failing. John Robert Stevens died on the 4th of June 1983, at the age of 62. Many followers believed that he would resurrect and waited for this to happen but I'll give you one guess as to whether they're still waiting. Word came out that from his deathbed, John had betrothed his wife Marilyn to his protege, Gary Hargrave. Some former members don't believe this to be true, But either way, Marilyn soon married Gary and became Marilyn Stevens Hargrave. I'm told that from this point, Gary had no contact with his former wife or offspring ever again. Andrew Marzoni noted that Hargrave Family Ministries, which would eventually take over operations, was incorporated as a California non-profit religious corporation on March 26, 1982, which was before John had died. From an archive of the now-defunct website GaryandMarilynHargrave.com, quote, Before Stephen's passing on June 4, 1983, he commissioned Marilyn to oversee the administration and spiritual direction of the Living Word Fellowship. Although the time surrounding Stephen's death was tumultuous for all the churches, it was largely Marilyn's love, faith and determination that kept the fellowship together and moving forward in the will of God. I asked Caleb about his impression of this handover of power, and he told me that even though he was very young at the time, he's since been able to form an idea of what happened through learning about the experiences of other ex-members. He became an administrator of a survivor stories group and has now heard hundreds of stories, as well as undertaking his own research. So Marilyn was married and had children And I don't know what years she came into the Living Word Fellowship cult, but it was definitely prior to the 70s. And there was a lot of sexual involvement from among women in the cult with John Robert Stevens specifically, and more looseness and freedom across laterally as well, if you will. And Marilyn was involved in that. And that also, that sexual dynamic played into the power and the hierarchical dynamic as things progressed. So I'll fast forward a bit. I think by the 70s, she would be what I would coin or determine to be a favorite and have levels of influence within this cult structure. And by now, the 70s, there were a great many branches. At one point, I think it was told to be as many as 100 internationally and domestically that were affiliated, if not directly a part of. And so she's right in the middle of all that. And then this is where it gets really interesting. So John was married during this time, had been for some time, but his wife, Martha, wasn't very involved in the cult as it really grew in prominence. And I think people saw her and knew her, but she was just not involved. And I think it was because, you know, I'm just surmising that she was checking out at that point. I know there were a lot of uh, family dynamics with her family back in the Midwest where all this started that complicated things. But by the time the early 80s rolled around, 
Maryland was more or less one of the very few had access to and control over John Robert Stevens. His health was beginning to fail in the early 80s. And so Gary, who she eventually married after John died, as far as many of us can tell, his story is that he was a cop in Redlands. And I'm sure he had other parts of his story. I'm narrowing it down here, minimalizing it. But in Redlands, California, and at that point, the cult had really grown into the LA area and Orange County area as being its core center. So he was near that and became, he was designated by John Robert Stevens out of nowhere, just being a congregant more or less to lead a whole grouping of these branches down there in LA. And so he starts to rise in his prominence and position. And by the time 1980 rolls around, Marilyn is basically speaking with John everywhere and everyone reveres her and sees her as this mothering spirit. There's recordings that are available online. You can hear her talk about the mothering spirit and her, she's beginning to build this, this uh, persona that God designates a woman to be the mothering spirit. And she is that vessel in the earth. By the time John dies, he had divorced his wife and married Marilyn. By the time that he dies in 1983, it's, suspected, if not, I think, verified that she and Gary had begun to have a relationship in John's failing health. And she was more or less the one in control and power over the whole thing. But it required a male leader. And this is where it gets fuzzy as to exactly how it happened at the time of John's death. Immediately preceding, he was basically on his deathbed for many months. I think it was six or more months. So in that time, and then in the months following, exactly how the transfer happened but there's this legend within the cult that John, on his, as he's dying, says, Gary will be the next one, and Marilyn, you shall marry him. And there's no proof of that. And so what exists for more proof is that she, who had been for well over 10 years, certainly more like 15 or 20 at that point, had been angling for power, had achieved the greatest point of power besides John in all this engineered and stitched all this together in a way that kept her in that position, which she then designated somebody who was close enough to the top that she could put into that position. But I think because she was so dominant and so forceful and in so many ways, so terribly abusive that she was able to make all that happen, particularly because of the longevity of her closeness to the founder and the way she built herself into the lore of the cult. And then what happened after they took over more or less is it, it almost became more institutionalized. And that may be how they retained power as well, even though the number of total branches waned after John's death. They almost rebranded the cult, even though the numbers of congregants waned, it deepened in a lot of ways. And so I think that's partially how they retained control. And she specifically retained control because it wasn't a complete recreation, but they did enough reinvention while retaining the origin and the structure, the basic structure of it, that that helped them continue it on where it might have otherwise died if it was just a simple baton handoff. Many say that things became worse for those in the Living Word Fellowship under the leadership of Marilyn and Gary Hargrave. Sometime after the death of John Robert Stevens, a woman came forward and admitted that she'd been with John during his disappearance in December 1972, when he'd claimed he had travelled into the future. She had been very young at the time, and John soon afterwards advised her to marry. Less than nine months into the marriage, the woman gave birth to a son. 
Under Marilyn and Gary, there wasn't any emphasis on bringing in new members. Here's Caleb again. You didn't get a lot of, hey, it's Sunday, bring a visitor kind of thing. And a lot of that is because, again, what we had was special. But I know leadership would recognize that unless there was a way, as people were coming around the cult or being brought into it, that there was an assurance that they could also be controlled, that was a risk and a vulnerability to the power structure to have people coming in a lot. And so I don't think there was a lot of new membership over the years, other than almost accidental. There was certainly no recruitment, and that was intentional as well. And what the regular people inside the cult believed was it was because they're less than, and we don't necessarily want outsiders in this thing. By the 1990s, Shiloh was hosting summer camps for the youth. Caleb told me a bit more about these. All the youth that were born in the 80s grew up into these summer camps that became known as the School of Prophets. I think they started in the late 80s. They certainly were formalized by 1990, and the young adult version of that was called YASP, Young Adult School of Prophets, and that was kind of a beta version in 1990. My first year was 1992 when I was 12. I think that was the cutoff or the minimum age, and what you'd do is you'd come for multiple weeks, and it was usually in June and or July, and you would work, and you would attend multiple services every day. And it almost always revolved around the 4th of July because there was this amphitheater that eventually was built. And that's important to mention because this whole entertainment thing was pioneered and guided and controlled by someone named Rick Holbrook, who is tied in with the family patriarchy of this and matriarchy, the family piece of the cult. And Rick was the one who was excused of anything but was the primary perpetrator in setting the culture around abuse after John died, who was an abuser himself. And so the summer camps included this entertainment thing where Rick was all about producing shows and he was a sound engineer. So the camps had that. It was a very fun part of the camp, actually. But most of the camp was about just intense amounts of all-day worship and service and then working. And the young adult version of that was a bunch of us who were born into it who would come and have, we'd stay in the dorms and we'd have what was called dorm dads or dorm moms. And we'd do these various activities. Some of it was fun. I don't want to make it out to be like terrible all the time, but it was indoctrination at its finest. It was take you out of your home setting, bring you here with all of the others so you can witness and share the indoctrination together. And those relationships are actually priceless and precious. Those are what in this month since the thing has fallen apart has been the most amazing thing for so many survivors is to connect with other survivors who they hold dear from those times, but it was the next level of cult indoctrination. And it took place in Iowa because John Robert Stevens came from Iowa. On a message board, one former member described Shiloh as a slave camp, with hot summer days going something like this. Wake up at 6am, take a five-minute shower that is timed, go to breakfast, go wait on the Lord for an hour, go discuss waiting on the Lord, Get your personal list of chores, do your chores from about 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., eat dinner, go to church, sleep, wake up again. By this time, a key practice in the Living Word Fellowship was so-called designated relationships or DRs, also known as shepherding or shep relationships and Elijah-Elisha relationships. In a Facebook post, Caleb LaPlante described these as follows. Every member of the cult is set up with someone above them who they have to tell everything about their lives and get approval for all decisions. 
if the DR says to do something or not do something, you obey, because supposedly this is an example of how to submit to Christ, a power pyramid leading all the way to the top. This is one reason the cult is able to force divorces, coerce abortions, shelter sexual abusers and predators, etc. Fear and worship of the top dog, first John Robert Stevens, then Gary and Marilyn, coupled with a belief that each DR carries the same type of weight and mantle of the top dog, also called mothering and fathering spirits. Marilyn is the ultimate mothering spirit everyone obeys and idolizes. Gary the same as the fathering spirit. The glossary written by an ex-member that I mentioned earlier described a shepherd as one who does exactly what GNM tells them to do, no matter how destructive it is to other people in the church. G&M being Gary and Marilyn, of course. Here's Caleb to talk a little more about DRs. It probably morphed not only over time, but through the shift of power when the original founder died and a new cult leader arose. And so it took a different look over time. But every branch of the cult, meaning a physical location somewhere, several of these were tightly located in metropolitan areas. Many of them were spread out, like in the Northwest, where I grew up in this cult. There was hours drive in between. But when I say branch of the cult, it's a geographic designation. There was a leader, and that person had a direct tie with the cult founder and was always in communication. And they would set up these designated relationships. Interestingly, it wasn't just on their own. As these relationships were being set up, it was that it was with mention of or by direction of the cult leader or an organization known as APCO, Apostolic Company, that wasn't a separate corporate entity necessarily, but it was the name for the inner circle of leaders that were very close in with the cult leader. And so APCO or Gary and Marilyn, which were the leaders I grew up with, the message from your local cult branch leader or leadership was, this is coming from APCO or from Gary and Marilyn, and we are designating this relationship with that in mind. It wasn't just that there was mention of a cult leader. It was always that they had an authority given to them based on the apostle or the chosen person who was designated to lead all of the organization. And that was a control mechanism for sure. And so then what happened in the local levels was also flowed upward. So as these relationships were put in place, and then the communications were happening. And a lot of it was that the designated relationship, the upper end of that would be dictating a lot of things to the receiving end of the designated relationship. This is God's will. This is the thing that you will do, or you're expected to have full disclosure of your life to that person. And then it wouldn't end there. It would go up to the cult leader locally, but then it would go all the way to the top. So there was this sense that all the way to the top was blessing this or requesting this or putting this in place, and thus it was a godly step, but then it went back the other direction. I think that may be one of the most dangerous parts of the cult, was that through the use of faith, individuals let people in positions of power along a scale upward have access to their lives and then direct their lives. Other former members wrote about the DR practice creating perpetual dependency, as well as encouraging a surveillance environment both of which I'm sure you're fairly familiar with as a listener of this podcast. One former member wrote in answer to my questions, I have zero idea how to convey the toll of every decision being submitted to the leadership 
but things as crazy as who to date, marry, how long to wait to marry, what kind of car to buy, where to live, to have children, more children or no children at all, as well as to abort children or not, to go to college or not go to college, job changes, diet, what to eat, what not to eat, pretty much everything. She also said that as children they were given to Gary and Marilyn as stand-in parents and that it was about the upward flow supporting their lavish lifestyle and the whims of Marilyn's children. Marilyn became known in the Living Word Fellowship as the Lamp of Israel, and former members recall her name being substituted for the name of God in songs during worship at some churches. I asked Caleb if he knew what was meant by the term of address for Marilyn. I don't know specifically, although I know that Israel was a representation of something. So this cult, John introduced this early on, had a lot of elements of Judaism, of Hebrew faith injected in. They would celebrate the feasts that Jews and Hebrews celebrate. Those are feasts like Passover and Pentecost and Purim and Tabernacles. And so Israel became, and I think part of this was this air of superiority that they had because while traditional Christianity didn't celebrate those, they did because they knew that there was this, it could almost seem elitist to be, oh no, we've returned to our roots. We're doing this. And there was more to it, of course, that's simplistic. So the nation of Israel and the name, the terminology term Israel meant something in the system or the beliefs and the terminology of this cult. So for her, she became the new John. Gary was was still idealized and made an idol, but similar to the way that John portrayed himself and everyone believed that he was unique and only he had this mantle, the lamp of Israel was a term that she had that made her unique and special and tied to this heritage. It was also representative of the female role in this cult. And so... Again, I don't actually don't know what it meant, and I've heard discussion and watched discussion happen written in forums about people trying to dissect that and how exactly it was arrived upon. I can say that when people heard it, it signified something to everybody in the cult. They knew that that was some special designation, and they revered her, and they feared her, and that was a term that they gave her to distinguish her apart from anybody else, and she referred to herself that way. And I think it gave her some level of credibility, again, back to the Israel thing. And yeah, you didn't cross Maryland because that was the fiercest person to cross. I don't want to go down too many rabbit holes here, but certainly Maryland is someone who not only was the center as one individual, but her ethos, the beliefs that stemmed from her as the female and as the dictator of the cult had so many ramifications, especially for young women as to their... I mean, there was a message in the 80s about girls turn it off, about how girls need to become zero and not put their spirits on men. And that by being anything else other than just the most minimal you can possibly be, you're basically being a tramp and a slut and it's your fault and not men's fault in any way whatsoever. And that was a way to shame early on when sexual abuse happened. It was already pre-programmed that women were at fault and responsible. In 
According to a former member, in 1992 all corporations related to the Living Word Fellowship filed restated Articles of Incorporation that meant that they could no longer make any independent decisions without Marilyn and Gary's permission. Hargrave Family Ministries had oversight of all operations. Caleb shared with me some thoughts about the financial structure of the walk, though he prefaced the following by saying he's no financial criminologist. It is well known that one of the driving forces in John Robert Stevens' rise in power and growth of this organization was that as a tax-deductible entity that's based on people's giving of their finances, the finances were great. At some point, they became overwhelmingly great in a way that made him and maybe a few others, but primarily him, a wealthy man. And then there was the commoditization of product. And so he had these this week's, it was a publication in the 60s and 70s that came out every week that was the transcribing of one of his messages. I mean, he was giving, I think, a dozen or more messages throughout the week. He was almost like a traveling roadshow around the churches in whatever area he was in, the, the cult branches. And it was turned into written and then eventually turned into audio via cassette. And it was purchased by congregants. And it became a product that Beyond just the normal church giving where you, you know, here, let me give you my money. And it goes into this more or less slush fund that isn't managed or governed that's tax deductible. This was now a product, the exclusive word of God that only this individual had, which was so key in the founding of this cult that you couldn't get this anywhere else. This man spoke something straight from the mouth of God that no one else had. They put it in written and auditory form and then sold it. And Gary took that to the next level. And when the cult disbanded in late 2018, the corporate legal structure, his personal wealth, he owned enough personal residences that as he began to sell them quickly and put them on the market, we're talking about dozens of millions of dollars in his own value. And that's not even, we don't even know what he controlled personally and how much money had flowed to his personal accounts over that time. But he had set up a legal structure. This is where, from John Robert Stevens to Gary in Maryland, it really was perfected. The corporate structure under John, there was a corporation, and I know there was some subcorporations and maybe corporations that were just associated with local branches that may or may not have been directly affiliated or tied to the hierarchy. But it became deliberate and very structured under Gary in Maryland, where they had an overarching entity that controlled all the other branches of the cult, including their real property. And at times they would, through the 90s specifically, I know there was a push for this, they would sell off and close certain branches in order to bring those monies in-house. And there was no accounting for that. So now you have the commoditization of the word that now Gary and Marilyn brought, that he's now the new mouthpiece that only he can bring. And they're making money off of that. And now you have complete legal control over all the assets of all these various congregations. And then it gets really wild. I mean, they created a health food product and brand called Maryland Farms. They named it after Maryland and they were selling health items. There was even a computer at one point that Gary was trying to sell computers. There was always a new fad, whether it be dietary or, you know, they were into Franklin Covey. And often there were products being sold through that. And that's just so important to this cult and how damaging it is, is that 
it really becomes just only a vehicle at some point by which to flow financial resources and beyond the abuse and control, financial resources to the very top and making so few wealthy, wow, if not exclusively one or two individuals wealthy and everyone else, more or less, besides what they earn at their job and maybe their wealth based on that, many people gave everything they had and were left with nothing, particularly as generations started to age. There were many stories in the survivor stories of people telling how their parents were left destitute and were more or less kicked out in their aging years and not taken care of. Well, there's just oodles of wealth for the cult leader. So sexual abuse was rampant, particularly in my generation of the cult. There's emotional abuse through the power dynamic control, but it becomes very corporate level abuse when it becomes financially exploitative and legally structured so as to maximize the financial and other types of exploitation. So that's always been at the core, the transfer of wealth from congregants to the leader and how the religious element helps keep that in motion and that engine running at all times. A former member shared her experiences over email of leaving the Living Word Fellowship, having been involved since the early days in the 1960s. Her mother had left in 1984, and she had followed directions not to have contact for almost a decade before she got in touch again. Becoming more involved with her mother's care as she aged, this woman felt ashamed for her prior neglect of the relationship. When she tried to take her mother back to church, her DR, designated relationship, told her not to do so because she was taking too much focus. Later, in hospice care, a hospice chaplain was so wonderful for her to deal with that his questions around why her own church wasn't helping started to open her mind to doubts. Over the next couple of years, she became more disenchanted and finally left, having been involved for four decades of her life. For many years, she and her husband refrained from any critical comments about the church as they had children and grandchildren involved who they didn't want to be cut off from. She told me, I felt all alone for several years and still have difficulty making new friends. Former friends no longer communicated unless it was to try to talk me into going back to church. This former member also shared what she considered warning signs to look out for with groups like The Walk. A charismatic leader who seems to be mostly worshipped by the congregation leaders who discourage free thought or listening to dissenting voices, a group that invents their own terminology not commonly used in Christian or other mainstream groups, a belief that they are special or chosen, advising distancing oneself from family and friends who are not part of the group, specific beliefs regarding their involvement in the end of the world. She ended her reply with this heartbreaking note. I'm angry for all the years lost, the time lost with my parents and my sister, for all the self-aggrandizement of a few imposters pretending to be God. You don't get those years back. Marilyn Stevens Hargrave died in 2015. And as Caleb mentioned, she had been the real driving force of the couple in the leadership. 
100%. And even though he was doing most of the preaching, he wasn't a dumb man by any means. And that's derogatory. I shouldn't say that. He wasn't a simple man that just took orders. He was very much not only complicit, but capable of being an active member in this power structure at the very top. But it was all her, always had been. And most survivors agree that particularly when she died, it was like nobody even knew what to do with themselves. And I, that was the moment where a lot of survivors actually shook themselves out of it and went, what in the world is this thing? Because they could sense with her absence that there was just this absolute void. They had built so much around her. So I, yeah, without a doubt, my experience, my life in the cult and around the cult, I can say from my personal perspective, it was always about Meryl. That's what made it tick. So Gary continued on with his leadership for a few years. But this next iteration of the walk was not destined to last. On the 24th of October 2018, Shalom Abrahamson Caples wrote an open letter to the Living Word Fellowship congregation. She attached letters that she had written to fellowship leaders in the early 2000s, detailing some of the sexual abuse she had experienced at the hands of Rick Holbrook, Marilyn's son. In the open letter, she wrote that she hoped Gary Hargrave and other leaders who were told about or witnessed abuse would acknowledge that they did not help the victims, but instead they kept the victims silent and kept the abusers in power. She also wrote that the issue was a culture of enablers and abusers. She posted her reasons for writing the open letter on Facebook as follows. 1. A real problem exists even after removing Rick Holbrook from the ministry and those in power should be held accountable. 2. I can no longer carry these secrets and their shame and I want to be free of the damage of these abuses. 3. I want the other girls and women and men and children who have also been abused to know that they are not alone. I'm not being brave, I just believe that the truth will set me free and hopefully provide a way, a safe way, for others to come forth with their truth and be set free. 4. To start living unapologetically without regrets, although I do not know if that is possible because exposing this truth is embarrassing to me and hurtful to many others. I was too trusting and allowed people to control my life decisions that in return hurt me and others around me. I was fearful and intimidated, and even worse, I believed they were the only way to God, Christ in the flesh. I was raised in the Living Word Fellowship from age 3 to 35 years old and I did not know other Christian churches or Christian ways, but I am no longer fearful or intimidated. I am free. Shalom's disclosures rocked what was left of the fellowship, as well as the community of survivors, with many coming out in response sharing their own stories. In the wake of the open letter, Gary made it known that Rick Holbrook had been placed on administrative leave and invited followers to share any further grievances with the leadership, Then on the 28th of October, there was an announcement on the website that Rick Holbrook was no longer involved in any aspect of leadership and would not be allowed back as either a minister, leader or member of a congregation of the Living Word Fellowship. On the 1st of November 2018, Gary wrote an apology letter to remaining followers and ex-members. It's one of the better letters of apology I've read in such a situation taking responsibility as leader and asking others not to express anger towards those sharing their experiences and pain. It stated two men by name, Richard Holbrook and Scott MacDonald, who were being removed from all commissions, ministry and employment. It also stated that the legal structure of the Living Word Fellowship was being dismantled with 
each local church to decide on its own how to move forward as an independent local congregation and to engage in fellowship with one another in a free will autonomous relationship. The letter ended, quote, Lastly, I will personally resign from any authority within the churches or church leadership to simply retire or pursue other avenues of livelihood. It is impossible to express how sorry and apologetic I am for my failures. With all sincerity and with a contrite spirit, I repent of my errors and beg your forgiveness. In Christ's blood, Gary Hargrave. Caleb sent me his personal response to Gary Hargrave's apology letter. In it, he quite rightly asked about the money. Quote, Ill-gotten gains, all of it. If you want to be remembered as truly being contrite, then give it all back, every penny. As another former member put it, the many properties of TLWF should be donated to fund an account that provides funding for therapy and support services to former members. Caleb and others, understandably, want full accountability and legal scrutiny over the symbolic apology letter. Caleb is also very suspicious about how quickly Gary was able to wind up the overall corporate structure of the Living Word Fellowship. I think that when Marilyn died, he knew that it would never be the same, not just because she was gone, but because could they really reinvent a power dynamic a third time? And so he may have hoped that it would continue on for a long period of time, but I think he started making plans for the eventual devolution of this system. And thus, by plans, I mean protecting not only his financial assets, but his responsibility for any of this. And so it was very apparent to me that you don't shut down the whole system in two weeks if you didn't have it already pre-engineered and pre-designed and predetermined. And he had remarried by the time that this had happened. He'd married a younger Brazilian woman who the whole Brazilian element is just a whole piece that while there were multiple pockets of international activity around this cult, the, the Brazil element was just one of the most telling and terrible, not to diminish those experiences of survivors in other areas, but I mean, they actually created a compound by which everyone there lived and had no ownership of and it's a different socioeconomic situation down there. And so the ability to prey upon these individuals became pretty great. And he had remarried by 2018, this Brazilian. And I just, I feel like between that and Hawaii, there were enough elements for him where he could step away from, especially if he'd been planning this. He could step away from the legal side and from the financial side, get himself out of it, and yet still have some protection. What I mean by the Hawaii is he had a whole contingent over there and a whole legal structure that were loyal to him. And the Brazil element, I don't think he's actually done this, but there was some mention early on that he could have left if the threat had been too great to him and gone down there and been not, he couldn't be held accountable. He'd be immune to some of the consequences. And he was so swift in his shutting everything down and withdrawing his financial assets that I think that's how he avoided a lot of those consequences because he had pre-engineered it. And he is not gone, by the way. He's out of the limelight. He's actually out of any kind of light. But those who are loyal to him are very much in communication with him and figuring out how to re-embed him in this and how to keep the thing going, it'll never be like it was. I mean, I think all survivors are very clear about that. The good news is this cult can't reemerge. It's not going to grow again from this smoldering 
bit of ember that it is in various locations, but it also isn't dead. And so it's a strange dynamic to be in because, for instance, the cult group in here in Grants Pass, who harbored multiple sexual abusers of children for many years and leadership knew about it, they are still going and still regularly teaching from Gary's previous words, not his new messaging and, and John's. And I think they're one of the rare ones that are still going at that level. But I know LA still has a contingent that's meeting and there may be a few others. And Gary is still very much there. For those who are loyal, he didn't just ride off into the sunset. He very much appears to have, but he's there. And I think he's looking for how to retain that loyalty and do something with it, whatever it might be, which just is a call to diligence for those who have seen this and are now outward and vocal and have identified as survivors and are willing to share those stories. It's just so important. So while the thing is on its last leg, if you will, and it may never really return to much, it isn't over. It's not done. And I think that's part of the reason why these podcasts, you're helping other listeners understand different cults that have been or maybe still are. But for those who are listening, who have a background in this particular cult, I think it's just so important that they hear someone, I'm not the designated voice of survivors, but that they hear survivors in different venues and settings speaking up against this particular cult that they may have had an experience with and that they're able to then further recognize it as such and not allow it a place back in the world or in their own lives individually. Looking at GaryHargrave.com today, apart from removing mentions of the Living Word Fellowship and Shiloh University, not a lot seems to have changed. The blog hasn't had any updates since the 21st of October 2018. It would be fair to expect that with true accountability, the sentiments of what Gary wrote in his apology letter would be reflected there clearly for all to see. There were some who looked back on the days of John Robert Stevens with rose-tinted glasses after the days of Marilyn and Gary, and ex-member G. Schaaf had these words for them, which he wrote on a forum on the same day as the website announcement. Quote, We know for certain that John Robert Stevens arranged numerous marriages between his congregants, consolidated millions of dollars worth of church assets solely under his name, dined almost exclusively at fancy restaurants with multiple credit cards from Kingdom businesses, was involved in a silver mine Ponzi scheme, and, above all, JRS preached a toxic message of total submission and unquestioning loyalty to abusive deacons whom he placed over the lives of others. He demanded this of his congregants as they abandoned their jobs, joined communal homes, moved across the country, worked 80-hour weeks performing unskilled manual labour, and donated almost all of their earnings to the church. It's time that we stop deifying JRS and apply a little more scrutiny to what his true motivations often were, vanity and greed at the expense of those who trusted him. With the various ex-members who wrote answers to my questions, the general consensus seems to be that John was a con man who used religion to line his pockets, and that Marilyn and Gary followed in his footsteps. As one former member put it, I have come to believe that John Robert Stevens and Gary and Marilyn Hargrave could not possibly have believed what they were preaching and still have done the things that have been brought to light. They lived a completely different lifestyle than they preached, 
in the form of wealth as well as normal Christian standards of behaviour. At the end of my interview with Caleb, I asked him if there was anything we hadn't covered that he'd like to talk about. I firmly stand against the cult system and everything that it has been over these six decades. Uh, John Robert Stevens was a fraud, and I don't just say that because I'm you know, angry or it's pretty verified that even he legitimately plagiarized his founding documents, like to be a Christian was plagiarized from a document in the 1800s. And he was a master groomer and manipulator. And then everything that's happened since then has never been any better. But it's a weird dynamic because while I don't support the cult and I'm actually quite against it, there are people that I know that are even still in it today who I care for. And then even more so, I know that they care for my family and I. And I think just it's worth leaving this episode and your listeners with this idea that cults are complicated. They're not good. They should be avoided, but they play at our very humanity and our relational needs and our relationship wants. And then once you're stuck in one, boy, they are really difficult to leave and destructive to lives and families in a way that you would think it would be obvious to recognize and flee from, but we don't. And so it's just so important to be dutiful, to be proactive in understanding what a cult is and just guard against it in your life. And it doesn't mean live a sheltered life or a guarded life, but lead one that's informed and learn about what the dangers are of these particular types of systems and then identify them in your life if they're approaching or encroaching and then stay away. And for all survivors of cults out there, whether it's your calling to voice and speak or just quietly be resolved to know what this is and why it's dangerous, I just am wishing well for all survivors of cults. It's just not a pleasant thing in anyone's past, but there is certainly hope and particularly in identifying what it really was in your life and being able to move beyond it. It's a bright, incredible world with so much to offer and the limited narrow perspective that the cult offers, particularly that the leader defines for its followers, is such a false and narrow view of the world that if we can just get out beyond it and work through the tough transition points, not that life is actually roses and rainbows. That's not the point of this last parting thought either, but it's certainly so much more than what a cult offers. So to all survivors of cults out there who may already know that, but particularly those who don't know that and are searching for finding perspective on life, so many survivors that I know that I'm in contact with and care for are saying that, yeah, not only is there hope, life is good and rich. And so I think that's maybe a good place to leave my own personal perspective on my history with cult and my current place in life. But I can speak confidently that it can be every survivor's voice and their message. And so I hope that many of your listeners are finding that in their lives and were able to support others and encourage them if they our cult survivors having learned about this podcast. So thanks for what you do, Sarah. Really grateful that you make this place available to open up the lid and see inside cults and then get the word out. Caleb has faced some real personal consequences from being so vocal about his experiences and his support of the women who have come forward, but he feels it's important that he do so. As with so many ex-members, I have a lot of admiration for his resolve in speaking out. On the 29th of May, 2019, Zalkin Law Firm put out a press release from San Diego, California, 
stating that they had filed three separate civil lawsuits on behalf of three victims of alleged childhood sexual abuse within the Living Word Fellowship Church. Quote, Amber Thompson, Anaya Shahori and Lindsay Weck allege that they were repeatedly sexually assaulted by church leaders when they were underage minors. Amber and Lindsay were abused while attending a Living Word Fellowship church in San Diego. Anaya was abused while her family was affiliated with two Living Word Fellowship churches, one in North Hollywood and another in North Hills, California. Attorney for the plaintiffs, Erwin Zolkin, said, Amber, Anaya and Lindsay are three of what may be hundreds of children, now adults, who are abused by dozens of fellowship leaders, including those at the highest level of the organisation. This is a story of an insular communal cult in our community that was led by male pedophile predators who used their positions of power to subjugate women and prey on children, ruining their lives forever. The bravery of these women in coming forward is undeniable. And while we wait on the results of their cases, I want to finish this episode with their words, as told at a news conference that the Zolkin Law Firm hosted. They contain some disturbing details, so if you are sensitive to these issues, I suggest you skip ahead about six minutes here. The sound quality is a little iffy on some of the recording, and there are a couple of distractions from audience members' phones and other technology, but if you have a little patience, I think it's worth hearing these stories from the women themselves. My name is Amber Thompson, and I was born into the Living Word Fellowship in Los Angeles, California, where my parents were followers of founder John Robert Stevens. Around four years old, we then moved and began attending the San Diego location where we lived in a communal environment, and the church was the center of our world. For as long as I can remember, I was sexually abused by multiple adult members in the Living Word Fellowship including those in the highest positions of power. Their abuse has brought devastating consequences to my life. I've suffered health issues and injuries caused by grown men sexually assaulting me as a small child. Their attacks continue to haunt me every single day. I've lived in constant fear of these people and the power that they've held over my life. I stand here today to write a new narrative. I stand here, finally summoning the courage and strength to speak out about the abuse I suffered at the hands of the leaders who called themselves Christ in the flesh, and to publicly denounce this twisted religious organization that calls itself a church. I'm here to bring this lawsuit and expose the devastating ways the Living Word Fellowship harmed myself and hundreds of other children. For decades, they've continued their abuse hidden under a cloak of victim shaming, intimidation, secrecy, and silence. I've come here today, we've come here today to break that silence. We've come to say to the Living Word Fellowship, no more. Your time is up. And to every victim, I want you to know that you are not alone. I hope that together we are able to see the light through all of this darkness and we can finally find the true healing and justice we so desire. Thank you. Hi, my name is Anaya Shahori. I'm 36 years old. I was also born into the Living Word Fellowship in Los Angeles, California, where my parents, we were followers of the teachings of John Robert Stevens, the founder of the church. 
And I also attended the church school for my entire life, as well as working in a publishing company in North Hollywood, Los Angeles. I also attended the services there, and I attended the church fund school. And for as long as I can remember, I was sexually abused and emotionally abused by the members of the Living Work Fellowship. From those in the highest positions, to my babysitter, to those who ran the publishing company, to the teachers at my school. I was raised to serve the demands of these men and women and to earn my place by engaging in child labor from the earliest ages that I can remember. And I know my place as a subservient woman to the will of men who command this organization. While I left at 19, the harm of this cult haunts me to this day. It has had devastating consequences over my life. To this day, I'm suffering from emotional and physical consequences. It also affected my career and my relationships. I have brought this lawsuit and I am here publicly to do what I can to expose the Living Word Fellowship and to those who cause great harm, not only to myself, but to many children and women for most of their lives. Their sexual and emotional abuse of children and the years of cover-up from law enforcement and the public. I can only hope that coming forward will help others to do so as well. Thank you. My name is Lindsay West. I was born into the Living Word Fellowship in San Diego, California. It has been incredibly difficult for me to come forward publicly and speak about severe harm that has been done to me and so many others at the teachings and practices of the Living Word Fellowship. I wasn't sure if I would be able to come here until just now and stand here with these brave women today, but here I am. Since as far back as I can remember, I was indoctrinated not to trust the outside world and to adhere to the strict teachings of the Living Word Fellowship. I was assigned as all children were a designated relationship or a spiritual parent who was to monitor and control every aspect of my life. As children, we were divided into youth groups. When I was 12, I was in a group called the Joshua Generation. The perpetrator at the time was the leader of the Joshua Generation. After I graduated from that group, I was put to work. I became a helper of the Joshua Generation. And it was at that time that the perpetrator began taking a special interest in me. He groomed me into thinking that he cared about me in a loving, personal way. By the time I was 14, he started having a sexual relationship with me. This relationship went on for over two years. Adult chief church leaders knew this man was having sex with me as a child, and they treated it like an unauthorized dating relationship. He told us to break up and wait till I was 18. They accused me of being promiscuous and discouraged any interactions with the police. For decades since, I have felt embarrassed and ashamed. I blame myself for what happened to me. It was only after Shalom's post, an open letter of her experience, that 10 others started coming out that I realized that I wasn't alone. I have filed this lawsuit not just for me, but for the countless others like me in hopes that it will stop and be exposed. I'll be sure to update the show notes with any developments in the lawsuits. Today, Shiloh's website describes it as a non-denominational Christian church that is independently incorporated. An article on the 23rd of January 2020 in Iowa's The News 
reported that a developer's plans for Shiloh had been presented at a Kelowna City Council meeting. It seems the spiritual home of the Living Word Fellowship, that was a place of hardship for so many, is set to become residential units, campgrounds and parklands. access ad-free episodes and support the production of this independent podcast via Patreon, patreon.com slash ltaspod. This episode of Let's Talk About Sects was written and researched by me, Sarah Steele. Music was by Joe Gould. A special thanks to Caleb LaPlante for sharing his experiences with me for this episode, and also those who wrote their responses by email. Additional information sources are listed on our website at ltaspod.com. Thanks again to Audio-Technica, presenting partner for Season 3 of Let's Talk About Sects. If you're in the market for some top-quality audio equipment, be sure to head to audio-technica.com.au to check out some of their stuff. Their range of earphones and headphones is quite ridiculous, from sport to gaming to professional studio, and they're known for some of the best sound around. If you've been personally affected by involvement in a cult or would like to support those who have been, you can find support or donate to Cult Information and Family Support if you're in Australia via www.cifs.org.au and you can find resources outside of Australia with the International Cultic Studies Association via www.icsahome.com. Thanks for listening and hope you'll join me again next month. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>